an 8-bit Rocket Studios production. Hey, Jeff, do you know who invented television? Um, the Mayans. No. A guy named Philo Farnsworth in the 1920s invented television. And you know what's really interesting about his invention? He could play games? No. It was based on horizontal lines. The same oh. horizontal lines that we talk about in the vertical blank. We were children of the Silicon Revolution, an X-generation conscripted to fight the console and home computer wars. A product of an analog 70s childhood, we came of digital age in the 80s, believing we could affect the world eight bits at a time. Armed with joysticks, full-stroke keyboards, jolt cola, and MTV haircuts, we proceeded into the vertical blank. There, we stayed up late at night, devising incantations from D&D rulebooks and beginner all-purpose symbolic instruction code. Video games were the match and programming was the fuse as the infinite possibilities of the digital world exploded into the internet age to come. We are Generation Atari. Oh, I see, Jeff. You're going to play, we're going to do the original intro from season right. three for yes. this season. And why are we doing that? Because we're exploring the vertical blank. No, and I think last year we um, we commissioned a song to be our title song. And yes. I really like it. Um, and we're still going to use it. But we, we kind of wanted to go back to... I think it put us off track slightly. It put us off track slightly and not that it isn't a great song that i think it's going to end the podcast in some place sometimes or or we'll slip it in um but yeah i think it did put us off track slightly i mean last year was was a tough year so we started the year with very excited about audacity games new um circus convoy and we had uh, we did an interview about it and uh, we were really kind of getting going about like the history of games and stuff. And then we got completely sidetracked um, by, by, you know, a, a family tragedy. Yeah. And, and, and it really, it really made the rest of the season really hard for us to get back together again. So we're trying now to try to get back on track and we're, and the, and so what we're starting with is a re examination of what the vertical blank is. And to do that, I have uh, I, I have two parts of a story. And I think we'll, let's start with part one um, that kind of introduces why we even thought about the vertical blank in the first place. You wanna do that? Well, this is the chorus to our intro song by Brian Travis. The entire intro song, which is not really intro song, it's our theme song, we'll play at the end of the episode. Sorry, into the vertical blank, 
This is part one. It's a story called Generation Atari, a generation of mindless, ill-tempered adolescents. Generation Atari, part one, a generation of mindless, ill-tempered adolescents. When I sat down to start my indie game development blog, 8bitrocket.com in 2006, there were very few other examples on the internet from which to gain inspiration. It was on that blog where my brother Jeff and I first coined the term mid-core gamer in 2007, but we're not proud of what it eventually became and where we built the games and tutorials that would one day form the basis of our books on game development, The Essential Guide to Flash Games, HTML5 Canvas in 2011, and HTML5 Canvas 2nd Edition in 2013. However, what began as a way to explore the relatively nascent world of web browser indie game development soon became an exploration into my very own roots as a mostly analog kid fascinated with digital technology in the 70s and 80s. The blog was a place where I could explore in short-form writing the technological impact on growing up in the 70s and 80s as a member of the off-maligned and often ill-defined Generation X. It was on that blog that I wrote stories in a series named Atari Nerd Chronicles, many of which are included in this podcast in revised form. It was from these stories that my writing received the best Web 2.0 responses, Comments, tweets, FB likes, digs, remember those? And it occurred to me that this might not be a coincidence. One only has to look at the state of the vinyl record industry to see that vintage technology mixed with nostalgia can have a powerful hold on people of a certain age and or mentality. I'd always felt that as a member of Generation X, I was very lucky to have grown up and seen the emergence of everything I consider great. Star Wars, Dungeons & Dragons, soccer, Lego, video games, computers, and the internet. These are things that still exist and in many cases dominate our culture today. I felt that the emergence of these entertainment properties and technologies had a very positive impact on my life and the lives of people around me. However, writing a story a few years ago, I discovered something I had long since forgotten and or overlooked. Back in the 70s and early 80s, it was not a foregone conclusion that the technological advances of my youth would have a positive impact on myself or the people around me. When I was reading through news articles about Atari from 1982, looking for interesting facts and quotes, I ran across a letter published in the New York Times. It was in response to another letter by a psychologist named Mitchell Robin, who was rumored to have been hired by Atari, written in turn in response to an article about video games printed in the New York Times on January 5th, 1982, with the inflammatory title, The Battle for America's Youth. The letter by one G.F. Cravenson proposed a future for my generation that I could not fully reconcile with my own experiences. Here is an excerpt. Video games are based on fight-or-flight confrontation, good guys versus bad guys. Allegories are just plain explosive shoot-em-ups. There is nothing friendly about them. The point of every video game is destroy the menacing obstacle before it has a chance to destroy you. In short, war games. Atari, along with other computer software manufacturers, could have created commercial computer games that would have let the player paint colorful pictures, graphic designs, or compose music, or choreograph dance, or even build imaginary structures. But instead of spurring future architects, they chose to pander to the basic instincts of man. They are cultivating a generation of mindless, ill-tempered adolescents. That's G.F. Cravenson in a letter to the editor in the New York Times, 
January 22nd, 1982. This stopped me in my tracks for some reason. For a long time, I've been living under the assumption that all these things I cared about and was writing about, i.e. technology and Gen X culture, video games, home computers, web 1.0, had a net positive effect on the world. In 1970, my twin brother and I were born into the TV generation, an invention that had drawn the ire of similar culture warriors to G.F. Craverson since its inception when it was invented by Philo Farnsworth. In the early 1920s, the basic idea of how electronic television might actually work were thrust in the head of Philo while he was farming his father's field in a tractor. While other scientists were working on ways to spin a wheel fast enough to shoot electrons at a screen, Philo figured out that it was all about the horizontal lines, refreshed many times a second, using a special version of a relatively new technology, the vacuum tube. Philo worked alone on his... The hope for TV was that it would become a mass educational device that could bring understanding, arts, culture, and maybe even peace to the world. In 1953, in North America, the NTSC, National Television Systems Committee, standardized the cathode ray tube, CRT, color television sets to be totally backwards compatible with black-white TVs. The standard ran at 60 hertz, or in other words, refreshed the screen 60 times a second. Inside each refresh were two interlaced frames, which created an effective frame rate of 30 FPS frames per second. Each frame had a horizontal resolution of 262.5 horizontal lines, but when the interlaced frames were swapped on every other line, it made an effective resolution of 525 horizontal lines. However, not all those lines could be used. The TV needed time to reset itself after drawing the requisite 525 lines in one cycle, so the number of horizontal lines was reduced to 480. That left 45 cycles at the end of one frame before the start of the next, when the CRT electron gun moved back into position to start drawing the next interlaced frame. The gun moved vertically back to its starting position to the top left of the CRT. During this period, nothing new was displayed on the screen. It was effectively blank. This became known as the vertical blanking period. The vertical blank. At first, nothing happened during this time. It allowed slower analog circuits to synchronize the electron beam to draw the next frame. However, it was not too long before creative engineers realized data could be transmitted in those blank scan lines. For example, things like closed captions were added for the hearing impaired. These features, the synchronized timing, the number of lines, the refresh rate, the interlaced frames, and the blanking period, created a nearly imperceptible flicker that emanated from NTSC TV sets. It was most notable in movies when a TV was displayed on a broadcast. Horizontal lines could be seen moving quickly down the screen. The slower the frame rate of the film, 24 FPS, was not synchronized to the refresh rate of a TV, and it showed the flicker in glaring detail. It was in this flicker that people of the ilk of G.F. Cravenson saw a problem. The flicker looked hypnotic. For years, there were rumors and stories of subliminal messages being inserted between TV frames that could make people buy things and do things they otherwise would not do. As it turned out, this was not idle speculation or urban legend. However, the actual utility of such a thing was up for debate. For example, in 1958, the subliminal projection company brought its secret cell technology to the Senate in Washington. They projected the words, eat popcorn, between the frames of a closed-circuit TV. It was disappointing.
disappointing to some senators who decidedly not automatically turn into popcorn-eating zombies, with one even quipping, I think I want a hot dog, though there was a public outcry. All three networks eventually banned the use of subliminal messages in advertising. Yet still, the rumors persisted, with psychiatrists even proclaiming in 1965, it is not difficult to put a person into a hypnotic trance over television. By the time my twin brother and I were born in 1970, television had become the biggest entertainment medium in the world. Quote, It is difficult to overstate the pervasiveness of American television. Virtually all children in the United States have television sets in their homes. TV Guide with program listings and feature articles about television is the largest circulating magazine in the United States. The average home set is on more than six hours a day. Most children watch television every day and are likely to watch at least two hours daily. That's from television growing up the impact on televised violence, reports of the Surgeon General, United States Public Health Service, Washington Government Printing Office, December 31st, 1971. Another quote, all the available statistics confirm the pervasive role television plays in the United States, if not throughout the world. More people own television sets and more people watch television than make use of any other single mode of communication. And that's from the same television is growing up the impact of televised violence report to the Surgeon General, United States Public Health Office, Washington Government Printing Office, December 31st, 1971. This was our time. An era that had seen the education promise of the great new medium of television shattered by purient shows filled with violence and fantasy, where secret messages could be hidden between the lines of each TV frame, while the TV itself hypnotized the youth, us, to do God knows what. People like G.F. Cravenson thought we were mindless because they believed TV and video games were turning us into zombies. At the same time, the TV in our house was the center of the universe, turned on immediately in the morning and flashing its messages until late at night, until we fell asleep in front of it. It was our entertainment and window to the world, and we loved every second of it. Then video games came along, and it was like an atom bomb of future possibility was laid at our feet. But this was hard for the older generation to understand. Video games in the 70s and 80s were what rock and roll and comic books were to the parents of baby boomers, a hell-sent force that needed to be eradicated. They became the in-vogue boogeyman of the day, with Atari as their poster child, and a moral pusher of dangerous ideas upon the youth of America. It's hard to explain the impact Atari had in my life as a kid. It sounds so petty when I attempt to make sense of it. Why Atari? Atari. An exotic-sounding name. Atari was the name I cared about. Atari was the future. Everything else was the past. So I asked this question. Was G.F. Crevenson right? Did video games, especially the ones from my beloved Atari, really have a net negative effect on my generation? I have to admit, when I first saw that letter, I found it rather funny. But the more I thought about it, the more it seemed to me that they were expressing the unspoken thoughts of most adults at the time. Forty years later... I was not personally offended by G.F. Cravenson, but I did feel like this 1982 person, and by extension an entire generation that came before mine, was not giving my generation a fair chance at success. I mean, were we really a generation of mindless, ill-tempered adolescents? Is that what became of us? Well, um, one, again, um, you know, Another pat on the back, Steve. Another incredibly researched uh, story and and put together. Um, let's. Um, it's funny because let's talk about the end of that right there. Were we really a generous and mindless, ill-tempered adolescence? I have to say, 
that just right off the bat, I don't think there is a generation of adolescents that weren't ill-tempered or <laughs> There really aren't. Like every Mine single one. Word, well, I, I I'm, just saying, saying. I'm just saying like every single one, when you look back, you're going to see um, kids who did some violence, kids who listened to music, even music their parents didn't want them to, even in the 20s and the 30s like they're every single one there's something that the generation before i mean imagine imagine back in the in the 1920s after that first pandemic not first but after that pandemic and ended and the roaring 20s come adults must have thought kids were crazy yeah i think it's why prohibition occurred because they were attempting to try to like tamp down youth culture they created prohibition on purpose it was like the you know a, a, a different moral panic but at the same time it's like oh my god kids are crazy we need to do something about this and right. then they Every, exactly sorry it's kind of the same thing now, i have no evidence about that i've not looked, looked i mean up, just think of the, like, the the 60s tv just sort of started it was black and white with four shows and then you have like this giant, like sort the of giant culture to, and, and all anti-government. And it's like video games didn't cause that. These no, kids could have been considered ill-tempered. You know what's nothing funny about that, Jeff, is, is I was thinking about that too. I, I kind of cut this out of the story. You know, the thing about the Hayes Code, and, and which is for movies and also like TV right. censorship and stuff. Before the movie code, you know, movies had sub in the thirties, they had subjects of like, you know, they're very adult sub subjects that they, they had subjects about sex and, and yeah. religion and things. And it, it wasn't like off the charts like it is now, but I mean, they had the subjects and then they were, they were convinced to, to not cover those things. And most movies were, were very clean. Um, and then when TV came along, it became pretty much the same. And you see like a lot of, a lot of the same TV shows we have now, like cop shows and variety of stuff like that, but very, very, very clean. And what happens is in the late 60s, that Hayes Code goes away. And so movies start showing real life again. And this is where a huge panic comes because the entire generation or two of people have been watching TV and movies and thinking that you know, it's somewhat their real life. Like this is how life actually is, where everybody is super clean about everything and nothing happens. It's total But all they know is that the life they've been fed to them through media is this sort of, you know, leave it to beaver, um, you know, Mary Poppins stuff. Right. And media starts showing real life again and they got all right. up in arms because and they, they get all the up in arms about it. it. It's like it's not like these things weren't already happening anyway. Right. Exactly. And so and so but that leads right into, you know, the and I have I've been doing a lot of research about this. In nineteen seventy so that movie thing happens, I think in sixty seven or something. TV starts figuring out that they need to compete a little bit. And this TV violence panic happens in like 67, 69. And then that report comes out in 71. It's right when we were born. So we were born right into this era. And what comes of it, and I I don't want to spoil it, but what comes of it is how our Saturday morning cartoons and our like action adventure TV shows that we really enjoyed in the 70s were the result of that panic, which in some ways is great because we saw some great stuff. But in other ways, it was totally like like shifted and converted based on those 60s moral panics. But anyway, well, I think I've mentioned this story before, and I want to tell you just a little bit about it because um, it always comes back to me as reality versus TV when I was we were just 
little kids. I mean, maybe five. Okay, so on TV, our two favorite shows were Emergency and Out of 12. Yes. Painting both the police and the firemen as just heroes, of which they are. I'm not going to say they're not, right? Heroes. Especially in the 70s. Then... And to me, that's like, I even thought like, how do they, how are they doing this now? How's it light on the TV outside now in the daylight when it's nighttime now? I thought it was being done right now. Like, like you were watching a yeah, we were watching reality happen. Like I didn't, you know, we didn't even have that, understand that. That's how real I thought it was. And um, this is like 1975, right? Then I think that was all cracked one day when I hear on the news or something that a policeman had shot some woman, right? And I don't know where that was. I don't know what the news was. But we went to the South Bay Galleria with mom and there was a police officer there. And I was scared. I thought he was going to shoot mom. And so and so that broke all of it. And so reality, it wasn't TV that made me scared. It was reality that made me scared. Yeah, and, and that's a really good point that you should have. You know, I want Hulu documentaries. I don't know what channel they're actually from. It's called like the Lost Tapes, and they and there was a really good do- they're like these mini documentaries based oh, on that. Yeah, it's good news based on news footage that hasn't been seen, and you know that was basically file footage for forty years or whatever, fifty years. And one of them is about the Tet Offensive and how the Tet Offensive was shown on TV, and and it turned people's understanding about the Vietnam War into like, oh my God, this is kind of stupid. Like we don't even know what we're doing there. Right. right? It was the first time people saw real violence on TV. That's the real violence that people saw and understood. The the stuff in the cop shows that people were upset about wasn't real violence. What it was was pretty racist is what it was. Yeah, so I'm sure I, it was. I'm that sure it that was. was the main problem to me was not that it was violence, but it was like really slanted in certain ways. Um, but I, mean, I, I everything then was whitewashed. I mean, you know, yeah, there was yeah, in, in, but, in the worst way possible part. But who yeah. knows? So about the generation that they that GF Cravenson and I only I mean there's lots of people with letters about this stuff. I just pulled it out because of that that inflammatory quote, a generation of mine is ill-tempered adolescence. Right. Right. It's a great it's, one. To me, it's just a, such a such a great quote because it so shows what one generation thinks of the next always, right? They always think. Yeah, just think about the how the, the millennials are being maligned right now. And I got to say, right. the millennials deserve it. I'm just kidding. It's a joke. Like I was just saying. <laughs> yeah, you're like, Get it's like, oh yeah. oh yeah. But they're the one that does deserve it, right? They're the, they're like, the only generation that does deserve it. Um, no, no, I'm joking. Um, no, I so, mean, yeah, um, it, no, it's funny because they, they're, you know, we had a whole set of, complexities and, and things that we had to overcome they have a whole other set of and they all yeah they all do and i just oh, i hear people talk about them and it's like come on man that's the way they that's the way the boomers talked about us like let's i know let's not I, let let's not let gen x fall into they do because all these people that know they were gen x from school you know on facebook but they were never really part of gen x like they only grappled on to the end of gen x like yeah but um they were never like really part of like video games or computers or the tv and stuff they were some of them were some weren't they were more into like everything that was still from the generation before yeah those are the ones that are that are complaining the most about the millennials i mean there's a lot of there's a lot you know one of the reasons why generation x just disappears a little bit is there's a lot of generation x folds into baby boomers yeah and a lot of generation x folds into millennials right right I mean, the later Generation X is like kind of a millennial combo. 
and and the earlier generation X is like a you know video games are stupid you know I don't know like pre like seventies rock kind of kind of thing and so you know it still is we're still talking about this very this slice of generation X that we belong to which. We'll talk about later what we think they should be called, but I think it's pretty obvious. Um, Before we get to the next section, I want to make sure that we, every single episode that Atari Bytes has, he plays an ad for our uh, podcast. And we play his also. And I just wanted to introduce it here. Let's play our ad for Atari Bytes. Bill is like fantastic. He's got books out there now. He writes all these little stories. He takes his Atari one. Isn't he at like episode five hundred or something? Yeah, he's got a billion of them. Now he does it every two. He used to do every week. Now he does every two weeks. Doesn't but, he also? He also has like a Charlie Brown podcast. Yeah, too. he has a Charlie Brown podcast too. So he's just a fantastic guy. I'm gonna. By the play way, his... I think I listened to one of his podcasts once, and he he had he like played a practical joke. It was like something completely off. And I, I think he was trying to see if people were listening. He's a really he's funny really guy, funny. too. Yeah. Really, really talented. And play his ad real quick. By the way, I know, play his ad. I also say Ferg is back with his Atari 2600 podcast as well. He won't even give us a, a a bumper to play, not because he's mean or anything, because he doesn't have time to make one. But we would gladly play that, too. It, he plays and, ours all the time. Did you fix it? Because the one we had before was just awful. It was just embarrassing. I think I set him a new one, yeah. Um, (laughs) And I did set him a new one. I don't know how good it is, but I don't have an ad for them. They've never sent it. But the guys that do the um, XCGS Game by Game podcast came back after a year. I thought they said it was done, but they came back after a year and they had a new episode. And it's something Norm says now. It's a fantastic podcast where they sort of review and, and talk about two Atari XCGS cartridges. And they're starting to get in past the cartridges now, which is great. They haven't sent us one. You know, uh, Michael hasn't sent us another uh, ad, but so I would play his if you did. But for now, let's play. Um, let's play this one. Hey, everybody. It's Bill from Atari Bytes. Every week on my show, I play a great old game. Then I read an original short story I wrote inspired by that game. Loosely inspired. Okay, often completely different. Sometimes not even based on any sort of reality. In contrast, on Into the Vertical Blank, which you're listening to right now, you get real stories about real people and what these games mean to them. So keep listening. There you go. Bill also has a new puppy, and he looks a little bit like Taco, but he's like a full beagle. Or, or Taco's only part beagle, but his oh, puppy's cute. really cute. Anyway, um, well, so that's... Speaking of content creators... Yes. You know, I had got a hinted from a, a YouTube creator named Bashley Coffee Boy, I guess a few weeks ago. Oh, he did reviews of podcasts, some of the right. ones we just talked about. And he's like, oh, I, you know, I hear this Into the Roca Blank one. It's pretty cool. I think I'm going to listen to it more and, and do an episode about it. I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. But I never thought he was going to do it. <laughs> I'm like, ah, you know what? People say stuff like that all the time and they never right. get to it. Right. But no, it turns out that he actually did do one. It's BCB number 36 from Bashley coffee boy who is not bashley coffee boy in real life he's brian bolding on twitter and youtube he has another um i think show as well that he does or, or other set of content uh but he did an entire episode about into the Rocco blank where he listens to some of our episodes or pieces and talks about it basically talking about this subject right here about generation atari and very early on you know we inspired tony to make a song called um, into the vertical blank, which it will be—it's going to be played somewhere inside this podcast. I don't know exactly where, but um, but we'll play it. 
uh, maybe going out. But I wanted to say that, Brian... Sorry, that will be our Tony song this this week. Yeah, into the Rock of Life song. You know, Brian's got to... I don't want to ruin his uh, video. I want people to go watch it. And that's just great because he talks about Into the Rock of Life. That's fine. Uh, it's great because of the way he has thought about his own feelings. It, somehow we spurred him to think about stuff and he's, he kind of comes to his own sort of realization and conclusions in his video. And it's kind of neat to see. Right. It's nice to say that we inspired someone to do it. It's also neat to see someone make some sort of uh, interesting theoretical leap in real time. And and what he does is he's inspired to write his own poem, a little bit inspired by Into the Vertical Blank, I think. I asked him if I could play this on the podcast. and He said, yes. So I'm going to share the mic. But make sure to share sound. So one of the other great things I really love about um, the End of the Vertical Blank podcast is um, the brothers Fulton um, uh, have created uh, some Atari haikus, uh, which I think is awesome. As a poet, um, I think that's really admirable. Um, I've been writing since 1990, um, so about... 32 years which is crazy to even think about but um that started as a way for me to get over or to work through a lot of my angst um as a teenager um going through puberty and being bullied at school endlessly and um so um it really did save my life um so whenever i started hearing these haikus and this poetry and the vertical blank podcast i was Part of me loved it, and part of me was like, "Damn, they did it first. <laughs> because I've I've written um, video game poetry here and there, off and on, about thirty years or so. So, um, to commemorate this awesome podcast, um, I wrote a new uh, poem, um, and I want to read that to you here. Um, again, it's a part of our lore as the Atari generation uh, to talk about these games that really shaped our lives. Um, so uh, this poem, um, I hope, does that. So here you go. Um, it's called Atari Poem. Um, here we go. Breaking color bricks and breakout. Asteroids approaching out on the fringe. Bloop bloop. They endlessly go. I lost myself in Yara's revenge. Walked up to the haunted house. Got trapped inside, wondering where you are. In a wood-paneled room with fuzzy brown carpeting, somewhere at nine, playing Gravatar. I'm not Generation X. I'm much more complex. I saved all my allowance for a robot tank. What did you do with your life? One could ask. I disappeared happily into the vertical blank. Wonka Wonka went the pack. E.T. in a landfill somewhere. Oh man, how I want to go back. Blasting toasters and megamania in a space nightmare. For sure, Enduro and Cubert ruled my life for a bit. I was blessed. Until I discovered Pitfall in 83. And later, in 2020, gems like Quadron and Secret Quest. I'm not Generation X. I'm much more complex. The Fulton brothers taught us that in awe. 
falling into another vertical blank and happily reverting back to playing solo outlaw. Missile Command and Defender followed in hot pursuit. Through countless crystal castles, Bentley Bear got all Berthilda's loot. Roadrunner, Frogger, and Atlantis, Bermuda Triangle, and Pong. Dark chambers and lost luggage, feeling this right feels so wrong. We're not Generation X, it's much more complex. Don't ask me why, just wait. I've got five more minutes until bedtime, another round of Solaris, it's never too late. Centipedes and millipedes, kaboom and reactor, so fun they made me sick. I guess it's time to play track and field now and break another CX-40 joystick. These are games that shaped my youth, that the crash took away from thee. So I find I'm endlessly fascinated by this wonderful 8-bit history. It's all a huge part of me. The end. I think that he kind of really got it. It's great when someone gets what you're what you're trying to do. If you don't know what we're talking about, it seems like it's um, pretty like pretty like pretty we're, thin. We're but insane. It's not what we're talking about, like we're insane. <laughs> and it is a little fan of what we're talking about, like we're, we're we're reminiscing and trying to figure out things. But the problem is, we're actually trying to expand upon what people think about as you know what the Nintendo generation and beyond understands about atari and in our generation which was it's not that we didn't have games that were as good as zelda and mario brothers actually there were games as good as those on the computers right especially on the computer yeah way better in my opinion well yeah especially better especially but it wasn't that it's that you're talking about the building blocks of not just the technology but the actual things that made it so there could be a Mario or a Zelda on a console. And that is sort of like, you have to get there. You have to understand everything that came beforehand. If you want to understand the history of it, if you just care about playing games, great. I'm, but for us, it's like, it was a natural evolution, everything that had come before to get there, especially like combining together Atari, What's on the Intellivision? What was on the ClickoVision? You're talking about Smurfs Rescue, all those things. Yeah. Right? And, you know, obviously there's there's systems in Japan and England and stuff like that. They've all got to this point, but they never, ever got to where Nintendo mastered. And so to understand what happened to the video games and then get to where the computers actually took over, it's a smaller group, and then you get to where nintendo could actually had a chance to sell something in it's all tied together it was not a crap company called atari that failed and then there was nintendo that's all they know and that's and i don't care if they listen to our podcast or not but i want to get out there the fact that that's not what happened i think there's more respect for the time now than there used to be when we started you know like 15 years ago whenever we started writing our atari blog there was very little actually 16 years ago it's very little respect and it was it was about wait there wasn't even there weren't even podcasts or there weren't even youtubers about atari or anything i think we did some of the first content made it on youtube but but anyway uh, i digress there was no one talking online or anything about atari back then not no one but very few people and you had atari hq and 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 somewhat on atari age in the forums and stuff, but you could go and find a hundred new Atari videos a day on YouTube if you want to. That may be actually underestimating. And no, every funny. game exists. Like yesterday, I looked up. I wanted to see if anyone had done a video about Marauder by Tiger Vision, 
and like there were like eight videos about Marauder. And like the, the game, the other game went actually played in, the, in real time in the eighties. So it's things have gotten a little bit better, but it's also the concept is also about a little bit about the the tragedy of it, right? Exactly. Because because also the whole generation like just kind of like blipped out like in marvel like 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 literally literally yeah. atari blipped out but didn't come back five years later <laughs> well atari, you know obviously in, in atari well, did come did. back in a way but not in the zeitgeist right no, you, they, not had the zeitgeist. Share, they had to share they had to yeah. share the spot with everybody else including the including the including the Share the spot. They just they were they were not even an also rant. They were well, like, no. I'm talking like, about with the computers too. Like at least there yeah. was at least there was a time where in it, it didn't have, in the U.S. there was a time when the Atari VCS and then the Atari 800 were was was the prominent gaming computer for like two years. And I know that no one understands that I guess zeitgeist because we were the only people there along with you know, other people doing these podcasts and talking about it. Right there's and, and some people remember they were there. Atari Atari. 800 was the preeminent gaming computer along with the Atari VCS being the preeminent gaming console. Then it all went away. Then there was no, a I don't time- want to I don't want to have I, I want to say something about this. I don't want to have a conspiracy. I don't want to be conspiratorial about this. But I found out something really interesting this week about that exact topic because for for years I've read Robert X, you know, Robert Crinchley. Bob Crinchley and with Accidental Empires and this other stuff. And I always wondered why that book and a book called Fire in the Valley never, never mentioned Atari anywhere. Okay. Right. And, I'm, and I always thought, OK, well, maybe it wasn't it wasn't that big a deal. Like maybe even I look back and I'm like, well, maybe, you know, there were so many other things going on like this was just. But then I, you know, I, I was doing some magazine research this week and I found InfoWorld, which is where Bob Crinchley's article was. His He'd have his weekly or whatever biweekly um, gossip column about computers and stuff in the valley, right? And I noticed that if you search correctly, you can find InfoWorld magazines that go back to like 1977 or six or seven on, on Google. And you can read every page. And they covered Atari intensively inside of InfoWorld. In fact, Atari, Atari computers, right? Atari computers and Atari itself, and as well as the VCS, because remember, all this stuff is sort of intertwined right. in the same thing for a few years. And they even had a full issue about Atari. However, you if you go to look at the Google magazine archive that, that exists, and you go find InfoWorld, and you try to look at the magazine listings that go back, they end at like 1987. If you didn't know that you had to specifically search for Atari on specific years, you would never find any of that content because their magazines, it's as if it was erased from his history. Now, I'm not saying it was. That would be a conspiracy theory. I'm saying it feels like it was. Feels like it was, right. <laughs> no, yeah, and it's good to go back and get those, and that's going to fuel a no, lot Atari of our... Atari was huge, but Atari made a bunch of mistakes, which we I don't want to I don't want to talk about them now, because we yeah, we'll get to them, because that's going to fuel this, this issues. Because uh... there, there are things that Atari did to make themselves persona non grata to that whole Silicon Valley computer... And we're going to you know, get there. ...intelligentsia back then. We're and so it makes there. sense now. Yeah, we'll get there. But my point is, is that like everything about Atari, they sort of blipped out. And But we all remember when it was the biggest thing going. It was right. as big as Star Wars. It was as, as big as Legos. It was as big as everything else. You know, you could see Atari commercials on... There was a... I mean, fuck, 
Atari had a commercial in the Super Bowl like in like 1982. It was the biggest thing going. And of course, we always talk about Atari's big, biggest mistakes and stuff like that. And, you know, and, and, and why that, that doesn't happen. But for many of us, Atari was the thing that sort of showed us uh, the way. And that's what the second part of the story is about. So I don't want to, we, maybe we can talk about it after that. There's a reason. It's not just kind of, it was funny. It was crappy. I'm not, it was like, no, it actually was huge. It was a huge thing for us that sort of changed our lives for, for the better. And you don't just forget about that. And it wasn't just about the games and it wasn't just about, you know, it, it is about the games, but it's, it's more about what it afforded us as kids growing up in the 70s. There's one thing what to say about that. Showed us. What happened, the way, the reason that things could come in and out of zeitgeist really quickly though, was because of the, the way media was organized back then, the difference between then and now. There was absolutely no way on a national scale uh, to keep something alive in the media once it left the zeitgeist. It's gone. There was a once, what, Atari oh, commercials oh, yeah, went yeah, off yeah, the yeah. air. There was nothing in magazines. It's gone. So the it's only gone. place that it's talked about at all is regionally or with you and your friends or in fanzines if they exist. Um, it's basically what happened with punk rock growing up. It's like the same thing. Like there's no national zeitgeist about it. Unless channels abc cbs and nbc were talking about it it didn't exist and right and, and it was even i even remember you know at the end of the 80s when they did those retrospective of the 80s are like the 80s was the nintendo decade i'm like except for the first half yeah except for the first half right exactly and it's just anyway so let's go on and let me read part two of a story called generation atari this is part two called v blank generation because i think it covers some of the things we're talk talking about right right here so Part two, V blank generation. When I was six years old, I hummed the tune to beat on the brat by the Ramones nearly every day. I did that because my older sisters played the Ramones, Kiss, Iggy Pop, Bowie, Alice Cooper, etc. all the time. Soon after, the Sex Pistols and the Clash and many more joined those bands. As a young boy, I watched curiously as my sisters dyed their hair, applied, applied black makeup, adorned ripped t-shirts and leather jackets, and invited a parade of proto-punk rockers through our tiny home. The same punk rockers, literally, who would go on to form the bands like Black Flag, The Descendants, and Red Cross, and DC3, and St. Vitus, and many others, sat on our worn-out green couch and had dinner at our Chip Formica kitchen table. Richard Hell called my sister's generation, the first part of Generation X, the Blank Generation. He wrote a song named Blank Generation while on the band Television around 1975 as a response to the Beat Generation and based on a novelty song named I Belong to the Beat Generation by Rob McHugh. Blank Generation was not a novelty to Richard Hell. He was serious about the feelings in the song. It became a sort of anthem for New York punks in the 1970s. The lyrics went like this. I belong to the blank generation and I can take it or leave it each time. I belong to the generation, but I can take it or leave it each time. Since my mom and dad were actors in the 50s in both New York and San Francisco, they very well might have been considered part of the beat generation. And their daughters, well, they were part of the blank generation. I watched my sisters, but I never took part, not until later anyway. I was only 11 years old. That was their rebellion, not mine. I enjoyed the music, but since I was too young, 
It was their battle to fight. My sisters and their friends got thrown out of Disneyland for not dressing the right way, got food thrown at them by cheerleaders, got beat up by jocks, so I wouldn't have to experience that myself. No, my rebellion came a few years later and was not about music, not yet anyway, or trying to change society from the outside with outrage. My rebellion was technological and digital and about making small changes from the inside, changes that were not as dramatic as punk rock on the outside, but would have similar and even more long-lasting effects nonetheless. My true rebellion came when I received an Atari VCS for Christmas in 1981. Having an Atari VCS was the start of my own punk rock style turn against the establishment. The mere idea of having a way to play video games in my own house was a world-shattering notion. No more begging my mom for a trip to the front of the supermarket, straw hot pizza, or to the arcade as the only outlet for gaming. The idea that I could instead save up my own money and go to the store and buy a new game for my own video game system was breathtaking. I could play any game as short or as long as I wanted. I played Atari VCS games for minutes or even seconds at a time. The flurry of games that crossed my TV set in an Atari VCS gaming session was astounding. It was not unheard of to play 20 different games in an hour. It was a completely liberating feeling that my 12-year-old self had never felt before. Up until I had a VCS, my life had been programmed for me. Teachers taught classes, the TV guide told me it was on television, my parents took me to whatever movies they felt were appropriate, my sisters decided what went on the stereo, coaches told me where to play on the soccer field, arcade owners chose which games I could see and play on the game room floor. Yet with the Atari VCS, I was the parent. I was the network executive, the teacher, the sister, the coach all rolled into one. I could decide which game would divert me for a few minutes and which game to swap out for the next. Even if the games themselves were somewhat limited, the freedom the VCS gave me was more than worth it. Sure, I secretly wish the games were better than they turned out to be, but the reality of owning an Atari VCS was bigger than such petty thoughts. Owning an Atari VCS taught me that I could decide my own destiny. No longer were other people, especially adults, always in charge. Playing Asteroids when I wanted to play it was my small, pre-teen rebellion against the establishment. It was a crack in the foundation of the great but flawed society my parents and grandparents had built for me. Sure, it was just a small crack, but I still loved the taste of liberty it bestowed upon me. The silicon high from discovering the secret message of an adventure morphed into something else in 1982, power. The power to rebel against the establishment, and I didn't need safety pins or power cords to do it. I cannot fully grasp the meaning of all this when I was 12 years old, but over the years, the importance of that little machine in my formation as an adult has become more clear. It taught me one of the most valuable lessons I ever learned. I could be in control. At the time, I was not in control of much. In fact, it was really just a simulated wood grain box that accepted the insertion of printed circuit boards containing read-only memory. However, those boards held worlds to explore, achievements to obtain, and fun to be had, all in an asynchronous, non-linear way that I could plan for myself. Just like my sisters had done with punk rock singles and trips to Hollywood to see the bands play, I spent every dime I had on Atari VCS games. I dreamt about them at night, and I looked forward to going to any store that might have games to browse their packages and ponder their screenshots. I bought all the magazines and joined the fan clubs and read all the catalogs and anticipated the better and better games that would come. Without established genres, developers had free reign to make whatever they wanted. Just like the punk rock of the 70s, before everything became hard, everyone was supposed to look and sound the same, games went in wildly different and experimental directions on the VCS. The limitations of the platform forced developers to be very creative about what they were building. Where else before would someone have been able to shoot at fast food nightmares, fight fires, cross a road, fight diseases in a miniature submarine, fight spiders, go to bachelorette parties, lasso horses, 
fly a trick plane, play an anteater, make hamburgers, avert nuclear meltdowns, shoot yourself out of a cannon, climb buildings, break codes, play as a fish and a seagull in the same game, dodge, frostbite, fight gophers, help journey escape, be a keystone cop, turn demons into diamonds, find lost luggage, fight tooth decay, all in the same hour. It was not until 30 years later when the web and indie game revolution arrived that so many different types of games were available to play. The Atari VCS games were rarely perfect, but when something is brand new, does anyone really know what will work until the failures start rolling in? I imagine this is how great shifts in thought and creativity like punk rock and video games tend to work. There were some great games for the VCS and they kept getting better until they were no more. It seemed just like punk rock. The limitations of the platform bred brilliance as the artist discovered how to work within the limitations of the medium. Who knew that the explosiveness of White Riot by The Clash could lean to train in vain, or that Neat 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 by The Dam would spawn Wait for the Blackout? Similarly, simple games on the VCS like Breakout Combat were surpassed by amazing creations once the game designers embraced the limitations of the Atari VCS and used them to their advantage. Games like Pitfall, River Raid, Demon Attack, Yards Revenge, Star Master, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Real Sports Baseball, Miss Pac-Man, Hero, the Arcadia Supercharger, and many other highlights appeared for the system to satisfy legions of Atari fans. I watched and played each one of those games, savoring the technical and artistic improvements with each release. Names like Miller, Miner, Katz, Kunkel, Crane, Warshaw, Bushnell, etc. became my digital punk rock heroes. Just like just like 70s punk broke down the record industry to build something new, the Atari VCS broke down the media industry to put gamers like me in the driver's seat. Recall that the vertical blank is the period between when the electron gun on a CRTV finishes the last line of the display and then moves itself back to the top to draw again. This happens very quickly, again, 60 times a second. Video game programmers back in the day used the vertical blank period to make calculations in code for what would occur in the next frame. It was where the magic happened, off screen and between the lines. Maybe my part of Generation X was not the blank generation, but instead the vertical blank generation. Far from the numb blank generation of my sisters, vertical blankers like us were struck by the nuances of the flickering Atari age graphics displayed many times a second. We see them when we close our eyes. We hear the beeping sounds of the Atari VCS TIA chip in our dreams. This is not a question of subliminal messages or being hypnotized by the TV. This is something else. Between those lines was opportunity. Between those lines was possibility. Between those lines was the future. The Atari VCS might not have been the best looking or best sounding system ever made. Some of the games might have been shallow, others disappointing, but it was ours and we loved it anyway. For many of the early punk rockers my sisters knew, following punk bands led to forming punk inspired bands themselves. In a similar way by 1983, simply exchanging games in the VCS was not enough any longer. Power, or in this case control, became intoxicating. The little hits of freedom from playing Atari VCS games stopped working their magic. We needed more too. We wanted more control to not simply swap out other people's digital creations, but to create them on our own, to create the frames that appeared on the horizontal lines. Having Atari VCS ultimately brought me a dream that one day I could make my own video games. The same DIY spirit that fueled the punk rock era was instilled in me by Atari. I stopped wanting to merely consume. I wanted to put stuff back into the system. I wanted to learn to program it to make my own games and my own content. To me, that is the true legacy of the Atari VCS punk rebellion. It helped teach a generation that they did not have to sit buy and take what was given to them. And in time, this desire to do more, to move beyond consumption to creation consumed me. It led step 
after step over many years to a satisfying career building websites, games, toys, and more. And it all started between those lines the day I first entered the vertical blank. And now I go back to my first question. Was G.F. Cravenson correct in 1982 with their assessment that Atari was cultivating a generation of mindless, ill-tempered adolescents? Who's to say? I mean, they may have had a point about adolescence. People our age never really grew up and out of anything. Many of us still love Star Wars and video games just like we did when they wrote about that in 1982. Maybe we love it a little bit too much sometimes. But were we ill-tempered? Maybe. I mean, the whole of Generation X brought many things like punk rock and grunge rock, Occupy Wall Street, the Me Too movement, things that broke down the established order to make something new. Maybe a bit of ill-temperedness was required for all that. And what about being the mindless generation? Many of us were trained by video games and home computers from the 80s to have the skills to build technology careers in the 90s. We learned we could control our world by playing and loving those first video games, been forging that excitement into the technology of the future. I mean, a generation is a lot of people. Some of us might be mindless. Some of us might be ill-tempered. Some of us might even still be adolescents. And some of us just might be capable of some pretty cool things. A generation of mindless, ill-tempered adolescents? Instead, I'd simply call us Generation Atari. Great, Steve. Um, that's fantastic. It does get exactly to the heart of Generation Atari. I want to say one thing about those. Every generation has something um, that people peel off and create the next thing from. Yeah. So yeah if we're talking point. about punk rock, there was all these people involved and a lot of people got into it. But only the most dedicated figured out, oh, this is going to be something where I can create a band or I can create a magazine or I can create something and peel it off into the next thing. So yeah. from that became, you know, relatively uh, relatively widespread um, 80s sort of um, new wave rock that you could hear on the radio, right? Not many right. punk rock bands got on the radio, but a lot Very of new few. wave bands. Very few got on the radio. Right? Same with sort of like, Atari went away, but those of us that moved from Ataris and Intellivisions and ColecoVisions to computers fueled what became of the internet, right? Like what came right. of the web. And that's what you get. Like it what was there doesn't isn't mindless. It it generates the next thing. And everybody next. has that. And and this is what we had, and this is what we, you know, from from some people joined bands and created what would become Nirvana or here in the Southland become Pennywise or whatever you want to say, right? Other people, they went and they created the companies that or, and video game companies and made games and took on what we come. And a lot of other people just fell away and did their own stuff, right? That yeah. had nothing to do with it. So anyway. I think what's interesting about that, I think similar for millennials for us, and I'll say the similarity is that is that when we were kids early when we were when we were growing up there there were no computers video games really at all and so the technological revolution happened in the mid 70s to the early 80s like we see we saw every every minute detail because we we lived with it where it didn't right. exist before and then we watched it all happen as kids too right? which is a good as kids as so kids which there were adults that were there too but as kids 
your mind is expanding at that time. Yes, it's very much ingrained in it. And then millennials, when they were born, for the most part, video games already existed. So it's like to us, it's like it's almost like the technology itself is fascinating because because it didn't exist before. I think for uh, for millennials, a similar thing happens with the internet. And where technology and didn't and exist before and web right didn't exist before so they're fascinated with the internet as a technological concept whereas the next generation internet already existed so they're fascinated with what to do next on top of it right. and and so i think i think you're right i think what, what you're describing is yeah i mean you know the, the one generation gets fascinated with the possibilities the next generation takes that technology and does the next thing with it that people would have never thought about because right they get ideas so, about what is the next thing to do yeah, and not nobody would have and also the ones that it. don't do something are in the mix of the users of what's going to happen too like there's doers and there's consumers and there's idealists right and there's also poets and musicians right so in that all of that generation they it, it happens every single one every time there's a jump there are people that are using that technology people that are inventing with the technology people that are so fascinated by the changes that they are the actual like like game changers of what's right. coming next i think we've done a pretty good job i think i mean yeah. i mean the whole point of this episode was to was to to kind of re kind of recapture what the vertical blank was about i don't think we ever actually did i think we planned an episode like this four years ago <laughs> no, we, we were actually were going to do it last year when we started going through the history we had a huge amount oh, of yeah. history of video games and atari but not the rote straight history that you read in those books we want to bring in what was happening outside in the outside world to what was happening in these video games and our own experiences we never got to that and this was going to continue that's why we had to go back and do this because it's part of the history yeah well this is good and, and i really i mean brian's thing his video again bashley coffee boy it really sort of inspired this so thank you for that but um people should go watch this video before we go did you want to um talk about watching playing yeah i do in fact i'm trying to find where my watching plane oh here it is yes yes so let's do a watching plane reading and then on the so way out done this in a long time yeah we know on the way out after out we're gonna we're gonna hear again we're gonna hear tony's into the vertical bike song from i think it was uh the first it was like in our first season and then we're gonna have the we'll have our full-on our full song of it. okay go ahead Tell me, tell so me watching, what you watch. So I just finished up the first season of Severance on Apple Plus. It is like the first season of Mr. Robot in quality. Oh, good. It's like a nine season Black Mirror. <laughs> nine, nine episode Black nine, Mirror? I'm sorry, nine episode Black Mirror, uh, all directed by Ben Stiller. In the way that if you took all of the strange comedy bits out of the Secret Life of Walter Mitty, where he's imagining things, you would basically right. get this movie in a weird way. Oh, that's um, cool. That's cool. I, I, I mean, this, I this show first, in a weird way. I watched half of the first episode, did not get through much more. I plan to get back to it. Oh, it gets, it's good. I know. So I'll say watching for me, um, the new season of um, Expedition Bigfoot is on, which is hilarious. Oh, um, I went to the Paley Festival this week. I took, I took the 
the the youngest kid, 16 year old. We went to the Paley Television Festival, which is here in Los Angeles every year. Uh, Paley was the guy who like ran C- CBS for forever, and he run and then his his, his he's, the, the Television Institute is named after him. Anyway, they do, it's kind of like these Comic-Con pa- panels that they've been doing for like almost 25 years now. Yeah. I mean, you know, back in the back in the nineties, we went to see like Conan O'Brien and the right. Daily Show and and so and Fr- Freaks and Geeks. Freaks and Geeks, yeah, that was great. Um, yeah. And stuff like that there. Um, but we saw um we saw the one for Cobra Kai, which was great. Um, and we, we saw the one for Riverdale, which I don't I'm not really into, but and, and I actually my kid is not really into it anymore either, but it was still fun. Fantastic. The show is just off the rails, which is awesome. Oh, but so is Cobra Kai. Like both are just off the rails. Yeah. Fan. Yeah, yeah. They've just you know, it's like put it in a blender and what happened? Who can fight who, or who who can turn into a monster? Who like it's just it all fan. turns into a video game, Steve. Yeah, it does. So that's uh, that's watching. What what are you playing, Jeff? So I've been doing a lot of research for ST games, specifically uh, Xenon Two, because uh, we may have an episode about that coming up. Yeah. Um, and then I've been playing through the Psygnosis catalog, looking for gems, and I found a game called Indigo, which was never released for the ST and the Amiga. And it's just this fantastic sort of Mario-style platform game that never was released, and it's awesome. Like, some guy at the end of life of both machines was basically putting in everything it could to make this fantastic game. It's a little on the slow side on the ST because it's got lots of stuff in there. I'm sure the Amiga one's a little faster. Not using the the uh, blit or anything on the ST, but it's a great game. So I've been playing a little of those. I'm doing a lot of research on these games to try and figure out which of the ones that would be going to my next video about Atari ST games that rock. This is definitely one that would go in. Oh, cool. I'm playing, so I've just finished my FIFA 22, 22, whatever it is, FIFA 22 season. Uh, we won I played uh, Christian Pulisic on the uh, on Chelsea on in pro pro level. That's that's like the medium. That's like in the middle um, dip difficulty. But we won everything, nice, including the World Cup. So nice. so and now now I kind of like I got done. I'm like I upped the difficulty and I started again. I'm like eh, I think I'm gonna play Titan <laughs> Quest again on the PC. <laughs> Sometimes there's no replayability when you when you no, because I played it for like uh, 200 hours or something. But now I'm like I don't want to play anymore. But I got really I got pretty good at it. So I played that, and that's and then and then that's that's pretty much right now. Um, what about reading, Steve? So I'm reading a book called I I, I want to say it's called The Man Who Invented Television about Philo Farnsworth right now. I am reading Jamie Landino's new book game uh, about DOS games called Starflight, how PC and DOS exploded computer gaming. That's That's a great great one. You know what? I know Jamie has done a lot of books about Atari, and I like like those. I like it, especially the ST one. It's really good. But I I like this book a lot because people don't cover this. No, they don't. Plus, people don't gives, cover Atari either, but but people Jamie cover gives this. context though about the other systems. So he says like exactly where in these games they surpassed what the SC and the Amiga were doing, or where they didn't. Yeah, and it's really cool. interesting because it gives context to his other books. So it's really good. Yeah, yeah, all of Jamie's series of books is great. I mean, people should pick those up. They're 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 great. You know, like um, I call them. They're they're non-controversial, but they're like they're they're like you know they'll give you the history and all the best games and give you as much as you need to know about a particular system. And at the same time, very he has he's a great like passionate style that he writes in, which is which is really really good. Plus, they're edited, 
I like the yes, fact that they're very much edited, edited by a professional, by a professionally edited, which you always you don't get all the time because a lot of people want to write a book about retro games and stuff, and it's hard. People don't want to publish them, so so they end up having to do it all on their own. If someone wants to get their their book published to get their dream done, I wouldn't you know tell them not to do it, but you should probably get it edited is if you can if you can afford it because um, it's usually better that way. Exactly. Jamie's are always edited and they, and they always read really well. And maybe get a, a like a Chicago Book of Style editor and a technical editor too. Yeah, pay them, <laughs> pay them to do it. So yeah. um, what about listening, Steve? Anything you're listening to? Podcast, music, anything like that? Uh, yeah, I got a couple podcasts that I listen to. I mean, I, I add them all the time. I think the latest one is called... Um, into the vertical blank. Um, <laughs> I'm always adding video game ones too, but. Um, so the one that I've been listening to is called Crypto Island. Oh yeah, yeah, um, Crypto Island's Crypto great. Island is, is by um, one of the guys who left Reply All for whatever reason. I can't remember what the reason was. It, was, it seemed like it was it was kind of an odd reason. Uh, and Crypto Island is a, not anti-crypto, just, a, just an examination of the crypto. crypto industry and cryptocurrencies with very interesting stories because they always were on reply so sort of like sort of like reply all but about crypto focused on crypto topics which is really good me listening so podcast wise every week the new season two of strange and unexplained with daisy egan starts soon besides all my video game ones original i mean like you know antic i listed all those every single one that comes up all the atari ones um you know the the uh, the the retro uh, uh, podcast of the week, all those. Uh, I mean, all those. Uh, but the one that's really interesting to me are these ones on the the um, the uh, this one network where Strange and Unexplained is on with Daisy Egan, and then um, band this band Wet Leg who's been around for a little bit. They're just like too too hard to describe um, what national they are. Um, but they're from the Isle of Wight, like British girls and four dudes in their band, and they are just hilarious they like they make music that kind of sounds like it was early 80s music oh that's great um, part little punk rocky part new wavy but they're just their videos and their songs are hilarious uh and they're starting yeah. to gain a little traction here or there unfortunately i've been listening to much music at all but i do like to li- you know what i do like to listen to right now i loved um uh tony longworth's um Eight bit Wonderland song that was in our last video. Yeah, I really like that. Now that I listen to it, and it actually actually did a really nice job of under of, of being the soundtrack to Atari's big biggest mistake. Um, the video that we just new video we did reiterating something we did a few seasons ago, but actually from another perspective. And I think it'd be really cool if we went out listening to another Tony Longworth song, which is his song "Into the Vertical Blank." That's next. Okay, Steve. So until next time, Steve, into the vertical blank. Into the vertical blank. Into the vertical blank.
Into the vertical blank. Next frame calculated. Prepare to write new data. V blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.